Now let's go over. My guest is standing by. We got him on the phone. Let's say hello to Professor Henry Giroux. He holds the Global Television Network Chair of English and Cultural Studies at McMaster's University in Ontario, Canada. He was previously the Waterbury Chair Professor at Penn State University and Director of the Forum in Education and Cultural Studies. Now, Professor Giroux is a leader in the field known as critical and public uh, understanding, a term to describe the nature of spectacle in our new media and body politic and corporate education. And he's a prominent advocate for radical democracy, which opposes the powers of neoliberalism and corporatism and religious fundamentalism that is now so pervasive in our society. He's the author of a new book, which I was reading yesterday, the, the, the advance on. It's called Zombie Politics and the Culture of the Age of Casino Capitalism. Nice to have you with us today. Hi, Gary. How are you? Good to be there. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to just give you a, a whole opening here, and where you can take it is, is up to you. Let's speak on what you call zombie politics and culture, which you refer to as a new and unique form of social existence that has emerged in America, whereby the political culture and powers work in mutual interests solely for, for the bare survival and disposability of civilians, citizens. And this, in turn, is leading to a nation built upon social death, as you call it, in a new authoritarianism. So what do you see as the strongest relationship between zombie politics and free market fundamentalism? Could you uh, answer those? I think that one basically feeds uh, the other. I think that one of the things that I try to argue in the book, without sort of exaggerating the cartoonish nature of the term, is that this, this concept of, of zombies um, really points to the merger of what I call a form of casino capitalism in the punishing state. And what that means is that as the social state is completely deracinated and, and largely undermined by corporate sovereignty and, sovereignty and power, increasingly what we have in, in the United States is the emergence of a form of culture that really is based on not only producing the misfortune of others, but actually taking delight in the misfortune of others. And so you have this increasing logic of statism and violence and militarism that permeates the culture in ways in which it actually feeds not only on misfortune but takes delight in it. And I, and I think that one of the things that I had tried to, that I try to say in the book that I think is really quite crucial is that all of a sudden we find ourselves in a culture in which brutality has now eclipsed the possibility for social compassion and social responsibility. We no longer have a language for talking about democracy. We no longer have a language for talking about community and social justice. All of these, in some way, are seen basically as either a pathology or as a failure. And, and I think that that's not to say that there aren't people who are struggling for those terms and struggling against the policies that undermine questions of democracy and justice, but at almost every platform, every plateau, every instance of where corporate power works on the culture and on the society, you have a death machine at work. You have a, a political machine that basically cares almost nothing about workers, cares nothing about youth. It, all it basically cares about is the bottom line. And it basically, what it does is it, it, it converges around questions of power and money and politics and education, a kind of public pedagogy that increasingly tells people they're alone, everything should be privatized, 
uh, we should collapse the public into the private, and that basically anybody who is dependent upon anybody else is somehow a parasite. So, it's, you know, it's, it really does mock a turn away from the social state, away from the language of compassion and social responsibility, into a place that is very unlike anything we've seen before. I mean, into a place where a kind of economic Darwinism really seems to have sway, a terrific amount of influence and sway over the culture. I appreciate that answer. By the way, virtually all of our presidents from Reagan forward have participated in this, as well as Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, as well as uh, Merkel in Germany, and, and other national heads. They've supported this is what is so dangerous about this. I mean, what's so dangerous is that this zombie politics, this culture of cruelty, and the corporatism that it, it basically reproduces, it cuts across ideological lines. I mean, you, it's really what, what we can say that the Republicans represent the most extreme moment of this. I mean, all you have to do is look at Obama, and it becomes clear that Obama and, and Clinton and others have participated in, in this, as well as a number of Democrats, uh, in ways that suggest the two-party system clearly is dead. I mean, they're, they're, they're both zombies. I mean, they're zombie parties. They, they're really concerned about the survival of corporate power and financial institutions, and to say the very least, the ultra-rich. They have really no interest whatsoever in those people who constitute what a real democracy is. Uh, let, those 99% who really now have no representation in the United States. Let me share one thought. I believe that people such as Ron Paul, who would get us out of our wars, but I believe that, uh, that there has to be a humanist, spiritual type of uh, libertarianism, and that libertarianism is in its current form is actually anti-popular, anti-populism. I also believe that the Tea Party, contradicting everything that we've been taught, is actually anti-populism because um, I believe that there is a, is a disconnect between populism as it's being preached and true democracy. And, and so, therefore, if we were able to have truly a true democratic populist understanding, it would be completely different than our need to uh, get enough capital to run out so we can buy something and we can continue at the mall and and uh, then we, we look at life as, as obsolescence. Okay, we've used it, throw away. Why do you need to buy all that stuff? Where's it been going when you throw it away? It's ending up in places that are not sustainable. I don't care. That's not my business. Your thoughts on this whole idea that we have or do you believe that, if you don't, please challenge me on it, that, that our current concept of populism is really anti-democratic? I, I don't think it's it, – I mean, populism has many strains. And I think that what you're talking about, and I completely agree with, actually, is that this is right-wing populism. I mean, and what this is is a celebration of atomization and privatization and individualism in ways that free people from any, any, any democratic notion of the social. I don't see how you can talk about freedom without talking, without allowing the notion of individual freedom to be connected somehow with the question of social rights, meaning that being an individual and having the kind of private and political freedoms that which often boil down to a freedom from constraint really means anything unless people have a certain amount of economic rights. If, if, the, if, if people don't have jobs, if people don't have health care, if people don't ha engage in social relationships in which they recognize their dependency on, on each other, that call to freedom is really quite hollow because it basically is rooted in terrible and harmful forms of inequality that give rise to all kinds of 
modes of authoritarianism and fundamentalism. So to talk about freedom as the, simply the freedom from constraint is really to talk about our notion of freedom rooted in a kind of narcissism and self-interest that actually undermines any viable notion of democracy. The real question here is if populism is going to be taken seriously, it has to reinvent the notion of the social. It has to recognize that basically you have to have a social fabric in which there are protections, in which there are government responsibilities, in which there are constraints around major power, in which the capacities and the, uh, the institutions that enable a democracy to deepen and flourish will actually be reproduced. That's hard work. And that's not about a mode of populism that basically is all about simply narrating its own self-interest as consumers. I appreciate that. Thank you. For those listening on our land-based stations around the United States, we are, uh, you're going to be coming to a conclusion here in a moment. My guest, Professor Henry Giroux, that's G-I-R-O-U-X, author of Zombie Politics will continue. We'll continue this dialogue right now live over the Internet on, on ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com. That's ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com. If you forget that, go to GaryNall.com. Now, that said, at what point does free market corporate culture and the uh, politics devoted to that culture become authoritarian? I'm seeing more and more of what goes on in America as creeping, uh, creeping totalitarianism with high levels of fascist input, and can we now say with any certainty that free market capitalism, in particular casino capitalism, which dominates Wall Street and the policy decision-making in Washington, is compatible with democracy and the higher ideals of freedom and liberty that democracy is built upon? No, not, not, not at all. I, I mean, I actually think that, without being too extreme here, I mean, I actually think that that mode of capitalism, that mode of market fundamentalism, or let's call it what, what it should be called, casino capitalism and economic, economic Darwinism, it, it's a, it actually views democracy as a deficit. I mean, it has no interest in, in questions of equality, in questions of social justice, in questions of creating a formative culture in which people actually have the opportunities and the capacities to learn how to govern rather than simply be governed. And I think all you have to do is look around. And, and you, know, you, you, know, you know this as much as anyone. I mean, you can't talk about a democracy that basically supports uh, a torture state. You can't talk about a democracy that tramples on civil liberties. You can't talk about a democracy that lies to its people, a government, a government which has a government that lies to its people and produces unjust wars that gives trillions away to basically uh, in tax cuts to the rich while making a claim for what I call deficit porn, which is really not about an economic deficit. It's about a deficit in morality. I think you can't talk about a democracy or a government that makes a claim to democracy that makes no social investments in its youth, that produces a culture of cruelty and destroys all things public. That's the antithesis of democracy. That's a new form of authoritarianism. We don't have the Hitler figure in the boots and all of that. What we have is we have a form of political sovereignty ruled by the state, or the social state or the democratic state, now being replaced by a form of corporate sovereignty. It has no interest in ethics, it has no interest in social justice, and it has no interest in social responsibility. All it has is an interest in basically the bottom line. It's ruthless, it's cruel, and it's the farthest thing from democracy that one can imagine. How is it 
that anyone can take any politician seriously today, particularly towards anything they say regarding redeeming social values when they are all fused at the hip with the corporate culture and interests? I, I think that's the most important question you've asked. And, and, I, and I think it's important because it raises the issue, how is it that people can actually begin to participate in, in modes of domination of which they're the victims? And I, and I think the question here, the issue here, is that we have to understand how the educational force of the culture has now exercises such an enormous influence over the way in which people think and act. We, we haven't seen anything like this uh, in, in really throughout history. I mean, we, we had educational institutions that were basically restricted to the family, you know, to, 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 to basically the schools. But now we have what C. Wright Mills called a cultural apparatus that is so in the hands of very few, very few rich and powerful people, um, you know, Fox News, Pravda News, so to speak, I mean, that basically have so limit the choices, the worldviews, the frames of references that people have, that it becomes very difficult to rupture these kinds of ideologies. It becomes very difficult to understand how they might be contradicted. They become normalized. So people don't talk, when people talk about democracy they, or citizenship, they think you're talking about consumerism, the freedom to buy. Or when people talk about democracy, they think it means that we live in a world in which is basically inhabited by middle class people and we don't have a punishing state and we don't put, you know, 70, we don't fill the prisons with 70% of people who are in color and we don't privatize schools. And so the question has to become, you know, what is it that we can do to rupture this normalized view of the world that basically privileges corporations and the ultra-rich? Now, now, you know and I know that the ultra-rich, now they're very aware of how powerful culture is. I mean, all you have to look is at the Koch brothers. All you have to look is at the variety of, of, um, of what do you call these things, these, these various institutes that now uh, are being basically produced by right-wing uh, corporations and rich right-wing individuals. Bordellos, that's what they're called. They're called what? Bordellos. Yeah, bordellos. They are bord they're intellectual bordellos. And what they have now created are like an army of anti-public intellectuals. An army. They're everywhere. They appear on talk shows. They appear on the radio. And, and basically their theme is always the same. And that is if it's public, it's a pathology. Uh, if it has anything to do with social guarantees, it means it's parasitic. Uh, and, and it goes on and on. I mean, and they, they simply believe that economics drives politics and that money markets set policies. I mean, that's the logic. And so there are no short, there are no long-term goals, there are no social investment, there are only short-term goals to, to basically enrich the lives of individuals and corporations. And I think that until we take this question of culture on the, the progressives, take this question of education seriously and what it means, we're in big trouble. Final two questions. In, in the past, you've written extensively about the commodification of our children and youth, particularly within our empire of consumption. And we hear from the GOP as well as the Obama White House now that universal health care is just socialism to be avoided. But now we are led to believe that even public education is another side of the demon of socialization, and, and there, therefore education should be privatized and turned over to the corporations as another commodity to consume, 
And as you say, the current market economics makes education undemocratic and is another step towards commodifying the public sphere. So how do you relate this to the growing disparity between social classes, the loss of democratic principles, the dumbing down of ever larger segments of our population? And where do you see this ultimately leading and for whose benefit? Well, I, I mean, it's, it, I think that the Obama administration is far worse than the Bush administration around educational policy for all the reasons that you've given. I mean, their, their, their notion of educational reform and their allegiance with and to the billionaires club, whether it be Bill Gates or you know, a whole range of the Rose family, a whole range of other people, it's basically, you're right, about privatizing education. I mean, they, see, they view education as basically a source of two things, either training people to be workers in a very limited, narrow sense, or basically defunding and depoliticizing schools so that they do not provide individuals with the possibility for being reared in a culture of questioning, one in which dissent, engagement, thoughtfulness, dialogue, all the things that make citizens operative can become possible. So you, you have a dual attack here. You have an attack on the notion of public schools as a public good, as democratic public spheres, and you have a notion, an attack on the public school as basically a place where people can make power accountable. And so it feeds very well into a kind of political system in which it becomes impossible for people any longer to be in schools and sort of finding, find themselves in places where, you know, uh, in a public sphere where uh, there are remnants of what it means to learn how to think. I mean, I, I think the message that Obama sends people in the United States about schooling is that thinking is an act of stupidity and shouldn't be tolerated and that we should implement policies and practices precisely for that reason. Hmm. Final question. On America's growing society of cruelty, and since 9-11, our aggressive foreign policies and scandals over torture and the killing of, of thousands of civilians throughout the world as simply collateral damage has created a body politic that is based on violence and cruelty. At the same time, we witness the level of violent images increasing across our entertainment media, including the right-wing news media and its talking heads like Glenn Beck and Michael Savage and Limbaugh. If this is a concerted strategy being implemented by right-wing groups and media, what do you perceive its ultimate goal is regarding the kind of public these groups want to shape? I'll tell you, I think we got a glimpse of it recently, Gary, with the kill team photos in Afghanistan. I mean, as bad as Abu Ghraib, the Abu Ghraib photos were, in which people seem to take a certain pleasure in torturing people, what we now have with the kill team photos is an indication of an economy of pleasure in which a pleasure in violence now translates into a pleasure into actually killing people. And, and it seems to me that this pleasure is no longer simply a matter of individual pathology as it was led, as we were led to believe about Abu Ghraib, but now is actually a social pathology. And I, and I, I think that where it goes, and, and I, I may be wrong on this, and maybe this is a leap, but I have a feeling I'm right, and that is where it goes is it, 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 it increasingly legitimates policies in which punishment becomes the only modality for really being able to deal with social problems. I mean, we have a book that was just written about a guy called In Defense of Flogging in the United States. You've probably heard about this. Yes. In which this guy claims that uh, what we should do to reform the prison system is we should give prisoners the choice between uh, taking their sentences or getting flogged, uh, one, one flog for every, public flogging for every year that they have to serve. I mean, this is mind-blowing. 
I mean, I think that when these kinds of discourses emerge in which you merge the spectacle of violence with the pleasure of sadism, you finally had arrived at a place where the punishing state becomes the only option to dealing with social problems. People are homeless, we beat them in public. We have, we have bum video TVs. Uh, people can't pay their mortgages, we put, them on a, we put them on a reality TV show and we dehumanize them. Uh, people don't look good, they're overweight, they have diabetes for all the reasons you mentioned with the last guest. We make a spectacle out of them. We, 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 we invent something called poverty porn in which we blame the poor, we blame misfortune on, on the victims, and then we turn it into something that can be celebrated. It's sort of like economic Darwinism transforming itself into a reality TV show in which the biggest spectacle of all is watching the suffering of others. If we begin to believe this, if that's all that's left, if that's the only outlet for pleasure that's left, then it seems to me that the punishing state is won and the social state is collapsed. Now, I say that, but I want to end here. I also want to say why well, all of this, I think, is, is basically true as an argument. At the same time, these struggles are incomplete. There are, there's alternative media. There's your program. There are groups all over the country struggling, those somewhat uh, at a liability at the moment, given the, 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 the current regime of political power. But these struggles are ongoing. Uh, they have, how, how might I say this? This form of domination is not accomplished. They haven't won. It hasn't ended. And so we want to hope that we can learn as much as we can from these struggles, figure out what kind of transformations have been made ideologically, politically, institutionally, and, and educationally, and begin to invent a new kind of politics that makes these struggles even more successful. I agree with that. Thank you very much for being with us today and sharing your insights with us. Okay, Gary. Thank you.